Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to The Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. The real reason people are skeptical about the scripture is if the scripture's true, then that means there's a God. And if there's a God, that means we're accountable. And if we're accountable, there'll be a judgment. And listen, if you don't wanna believe in God and you don't wanna be accountable and you don't wanna face a judgment, it's kind of bad news, bad news, because all oh, God's still real and there will be a judgment. You will be held accountable. Today we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, The Baptism of Jesus. Now we're taking up in Luke chapter three, beginning in verse 16 and going through the end of the chapter. We are considering baptism, but not just physical baptism, but also the spiritual meaning behind it. So let's listen in. He says you're gonna be baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire, but he's talking to a diverse group. He's talking to people, some of whom are going to repent, they will receive the spirit baptism. Some of them are going to refuse. They will be awaiting the baptism of fire. Contextually, and this is always the key to understand what you're reading, verse 17, the very next verse explains this to us. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. He'll gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The baptism of the spirit is for the wheat. The baptism of fire is for the chaff. Why? Side by side, you see, he's placing them. There is something else though, first mention, and, and we're not gonna build a doctrine around the rule of first mention, but it is beyond interesting to me that I went back to look, where's the first place in scripture? Fire is mentioned, Genesis 19:24. the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. I'm pretty sure if you go back and research it, you'll see that was a, a baptism of fire and that was a baptism of judgment. The very last place fire is mentioned in scripture, Revelation 21, eight, the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So we have the immediate context, we have the first and last mentions, and there's still more. Here in our passage, he's, he's talking about separating wheat from chaff. Now a chaff is a part of the wheat, but it isn't wheat itself. And I, I get the picture that, you know, John's looking out at the crowd, even as I look out at you guys, and, and uh, well, he's just calling them all to repentance. And as he does, he realizes some of these people are wheat. And some of them are chaff. And he's just saying, hey, you need to know wheat's going to be gathered into the barn and the chaff's going to be burnt with unquenchable fire. Jesus uses a similar, though not exactly the same, image and, and illustration in his parable in Matthew 13 of the, the, um, the wheat and the tares. Now, wheat and tares, they grow alongside of each other. In fact, he says he plants wheat and then somebody, an enemy, plants tares and his servants come and say, hey, didn't you plant good seed? Why are there tares among the wheat? He said, well, an enemy did this. They say, do you want us to go and pull them up. He goes, no lest while you uproot the tares, you also uproot the wheat. Sometimes they're kind of connected and hanging close. And so he's just saying that that wouldn't be a good idea. But he goes on to say, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers who he later identifies as being angels, 
not you, not me. It's not our thing to judge or to separate. He says, first gather the tares and bind them into bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So we have the wheat and the chaff. We have the wheat and the tares. And just in case you're not into all that agricultural stuff, he gives an illustration in Matthew 25 that, that gives us the exact same message with the very same end. But he, he gives it in the parable of the sheep and the goats. And basically what he does is he says in the, the uh, when the son of man comes in his glory and all his holy angels with him, he'll sit on the throne of his glory. All nations will be gathered together before him. He'll separate them from one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And all three of these little pictures that he's giving us, there is a separation. The wheat from the chaff, the wheat from the tares, and now the sheep from the goats. And he says, and, and, and there are two verses here that are exceedingly important to us today. He says, I'll set the sheep on his right hand, the goats on the left, and the king will say to those on his right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the from the foundation of the world. He tells his sheep, you know he calls us that. It's a lesson all in of itself. We don't have time to go into it, but he calls his sheep those who have a kingdom prepared from them from the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to say, and, and don't want you to be confused by this, so let's make sure no one is. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you, you know, visited me or I was in prison and you visited me. And they're going to say, when did we do any of that? And he says, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Now, here's what we don't want to mistake and what many have. He's not saying if you do those things, that will make you his sheep. Because it's possible to feed the poor and clothe the, the naked and visit those in prison and not give your life to the Lord. I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to do those things, but you want to make sure that you don't think you're a Christian because you've done those things. The reality is what he's saying is if, in fact, you're his sheep, a believer, a Christian... Well, you will be someone who cares for the poor, who cares for those who are in prison, who makes sure others' needs are met. Why? God meets your every need. You'll have a heart of compassion to meet the needs of others. So you can do those things and not be a believer. But I believe this passage is saying you can't be a believer and not be willing to do those things. On the other side of the coin, he'll say to those on his left, the goats. We used to have a song, I don't want to be a goat, nope. Do you remember singing that? Some of you were around and we'd be like, bah, you know, for the sheep and, and the goat, nope, because a goat don't have no hope, nope. And I just like, don't and words like that. So, but anyway, he says, uh, he, to those on his left, he say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire. And, and here's the difference, prepared for the devil and his angels. To the sheep, he says, hey, I prepared a place for you from the very beginning. It's beautiful. It's heaven. It, it's, it's eternal. But he, he says to the, to the goats, this is the place prepared for the devil and his angels, those who fell with him, those who rebelled with him. What's the point? That he never intended or created hell for people. Now, I wish I could say that means no people end up there. But that would not be faithful to the scripture, nor my Lord. No, people end up in hell, but not because he wants them there or created them for hell or even created hell for them. But because there's only two destinations and, and you choose your road at the cross. You either set your heart to, to yield to the Lord and serve the Lord and surrender to the Lord. And then he puts you on the path that leads to everlasting life. Or you rebel and resist and refuse and you continue on the road you're already on 
that leads, he says, to destruction. By the way, he does go on to say, I was hungry and you didn't feed me, thirsty. And, you know, so it, 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 the, the same exact scenario. But, but the point is three parables and, and, and or three different images, illustrations for us. And every single one, there's everlasting fire for the chaff, for the tares, and for the goats. It's three pictures telling us the same exact thing. The baptism of fire is a baptism of judgment. If you're partaker in the baptism of the Spirit, sealed with the Spirit, and then hopefully prayerfully filled with the Spirit, well, you're never going to face that baptism of judgment and fire. Well, John, for all his faithfulness, and he was a faithful witness, ends up, as we read in verses 18 and 19, and uh, even into 20, he ended up being shut up in prison. It's sort of an interesting scenario because Herod liked John. He used to have him in, and John would preach, and Herod's like, man, this guy's just good. You know, he, it said he enjoyed hearing him preach, and, and I think most of us will relate to this. We like hearing anyone preach about someone else's sin. But when they get in our face or in our grill and they start saying, by the way, your sin, you need to repent. Well, that's what he did to Herod. He got in his face and he said, you took your brother Philip's wife, Herodias. That's wrong. You need to repent. Well, Herod didn't really appreciate that uh, exhortation. And so he imprisoned John. Ultimately, John will become a witness in its fullest sense of the word. It comes, the, by the way, our English word, Witness comes from a Greek word that's also translated martyr. So he was a living witness for the Lord. And then he laid down his life, died for his faithfulness to the Lord and the word. Well, in any case, John identifies Jesus and, and, and we get now to the baptism of Jesus. It's here in verse 21. It says, when the people were baptized, uh, it came to pass Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. The Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Now, some have been confused about Jesus' baptism because this particular baptism is him physically submitting to John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance. Jesus, of course, without sin, tempted in all ways, yet without sin. He didn't really need to be baptized in order to deal with the sin issue, but he was being baptized for a couple very important reasons. He tells John, first of all, and John recognizes, hey, I should be being baptized by you. That was John's first response to seeing Jesus coming out into the water for baptism. And Jesus says, hey, permit it to be so. Let it fulfill all righteousness. In other words, John, this is right. It needs to happen. What's Jesus doing? At least two things. He's identifying in the baptism with sinful man. In the very same way he would identify with sinful man on the cross, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he's identifying with us. All the people were confessing they were sinners. He comes out and says, well, don't have anything to confess, but I am a part of the human race here. And he was acknowledging that he is a part and he identifies and cares for those sinful people who were at the baptism. He was also doing something else. They who were coming to be baptized, they were saying, I'm going to turn from living for self and I'm going to live for God. I'm going to stop living after my sinful nature and I'm going to live after the, the spirit of God and the plan of God. Well, 
Jesus up to this point had been living in obscurity. We know he was still upright and pleasing the Lord. It says that he, he did always those things that please the Father. But at this point, he is publicly declaring that he is public beginning, excuse me, his public ministry. So it, it's very, you know, outward. Everybody could see it. But there's a third thing, and that is John had been instructed that the one who comes and, and the one upon whom you see the Spirit descend in the form of a dove and remain upon him, that one would be the Christ. Now, John and Jesus were cousins. They were born just a full few months apart. They knew each other well. And so in the midst of all of that, John knows Jesus is a spiritual guy. That's why he's like, I should be being baptized by you. See, John, unlike Jesus, had actually sinned. And he recognized Jesus was holier. He didn't yet know Jesus was the Savior. But he sees the spirit descend in the bodily form of a dove. And, and he hears the voice from heaven. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. And, and the very next thing, having baptized Jesus, what does he do the next day? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was the third reason. And there are probably more, but, but we have at least those three. By the way, Jesus likens his cross to a baptism in Luke 12, 50. We'll see it some weeks and months out. I have a baptism to be baptized with, he says, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. And in the context, you'll be able to see he's looking forward to the cross and he's ca calling that a baptism. Why? He took our judgment upon himself when he was nailed to that cross. Well, Luke 3 concludes with the genealogy and we're not going to spend our time reading these names. I had thought it would be fun to maybe volunteer one of you to come up and just read them all for us. In my early years as a pastor, I was just so set I'm going to do all this right. I actually sat with, a, back in those days, it was tapes. There were no CDs. And I had a cassette. And I would just, you know, phonetically listen and then mark every single one so I could read it. But, you know, I'd be in there staring at it and reading it. And I'd look up and people were like, you know, um, spaced in the grace. And, and so I'm just, I realized that, that hey, there, there's a, a value and a use. And let me just share three Three, and there are many more, but just three reasons for the genealogies and how they apply to us. And then just a couple important uh, observation on these particular genealogies. Well, let me share first. You know, in Matthew, Matthew gives a genealogy. He takes Jesus back to David and to Abraham. He calls him the son of Abraham, son of David. Why? Matthew writes to prove that Jesus is deity, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Savior. Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam because he writes to prove Jesus is a real man. He's dealing with his human side, his humanity, if you will. So there are differences in the genealogies. We'll come back to that, but I just wanted to lay that out uh, first of all. First reason uh, why genealogies are important, while not every person listed is familiar to us, every single one is important to God. And I'm reminded, though we're not listed here in Scripture, we're listed in, in an even more important place. And you're thinking, how could that be possible? Where our names are written, we're told if we're in fact born again, where our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And no one will be in heaven with him or be in eternity with him whose name is not written in the Book of Life. And uh, so if you're born again, your name's there. If you're not born again, man, I'd make sure you, you know, get a reservation that you deal with that issue and that you make sure your name is recorded in heaven. The second reason genealogies are important, not just this or Matthew's, but all the genealogies, is they trace a family line. And it reminds us God made Adam and then Eve 
He, he made the first couple. He performed the first wedding. His desire, a godly seed. Family is God's institution. That's why there's such an attack on the family. Redefining the name or nature of family. Redefining what marriage is. The attack is to devastate and destroy the very foundation of a healthy and vibrant society. Well, the bottom line is family is exceedingly important to God. And so when you read a genealogy, you're not just reading random names. In fact, if you've been reading through or studying the Old Testament, as many of you I know are, well, many of these names will be familiar. I mean, names like Nathan and David and Boaz and Judah and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and, and Adam. There are others, but all of those should stand out to you. And there are many more that would stand out to you as well. The third reason, and this is the most important, the most important for reason for the genealogies, at least these in the Gospels, is they're written to prove that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, that he is truly God and truly man. And, and so what happens? Well, whenever God gives us something to bless and benefit us, the enemy wants to devastate it and destroy it or distort it. And so skeptics read the genealogies and they're quick to point out there are differences. Well, I call them differences. They call them discrepancies. What's the point? Well, I have a sneaking suspicion, though I can't prove it, that the real reason people are skeptical about the scripture is if the scripture's true, then that means there's a God. And if there's a God, that means we're accountable. And if we're accountable, there'll be a judgment. And listen, if you don't want to believe in God and you don't want to be accountable and you don't want to face a judgment, it's kind of bad news, bad news, because oh, God's still real and there will be a judgment. You will be held accountable. But I think people think if I could disprove the scripture, then I don't have to believe in God. And so people actually spend a lot of time reading the book that has the potential to change their mind and has changed many over the years. But here's the deal. If you read the genealogies and you pay attention at all, you can't help but notice it here in verse 23. It says, Jesus himself began his ministry about 30 years of age, as was supposed, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, we know from Matthew's gospel that Joseph is called the son of Jacob. And so the skeptic looks and says, well, this one says he's the son of Heli. The other one says he's the son of Jacob. They can't both be true. So, you know, what in the world is that about? No, listen, we actually find the solution to this one in a very unexpected place. Some of you have heard of the Jewish commentary on the scriptures. It's called the Talmud. It was written not long after Jesus' uh, death. So it's first century, the, at least the portion we're uh, making reference to. And, uh, and in the Talmud, a Jewish commentary written by people that certainly did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. And that becomes clear. They write, Jesus was an illegitimate son of Mary of Bethlehem, the daughter of Heli. This is what's important. They were wrong about the illegitimate son. They just didn't buy the virgin birth story. Okay, we get that. But they did get the genealogy part right. In other words, Mary's dad was Heli. Joseph's dad was Jacob. And you know, when you marry into a family, well, you have a mom and dad, and then, well, you marry into a family, now you have two moms and dads, and many will call, you know, your, your uh, father-in-law dad, or your mother-in-law mom. My daughter-in-law always call me grandpa. That doesn't bother me anymore, since they've made good on all that, but, but uh, you know. The, the, the point is, is, she had a grandpa, but she called me, and, and, and it's a family thing. We do it, they did it. 
But, but it's even more important in their situation because we're, we're tracking two lines. Joseph's genealogy given to us in Matthew's gospel shows that Jesus is the legal heir to the throne of David. Joseph is in the direct lineage of David through Solomon. And so Joseph was actually in line to become the king. It's just interesting to note that, that here's a guy and he's a carpenter and he's taking care of Jesus and he's and he's taking care. But, but, but there's something else as it relates to Joseph and Jesus. How does Jesus then become the legal heir to the throne of David? Joseph marries Mary before Jesus is born. That makes him legally the son of Joseph, though he wasn't physically the son of Joseph. So he is now a legal heir to the throne of David, something the Messiah had to be able to prove he in fact was. On the other side of the coin, we're told that, that um, the Messiah would be a blood relative of David, a descendant by blood. And that's why in Luke's genealogy, we're actually looking at Mary's genealogy. That's why it says son of Levi, uh, or excuse me, not Levi, but um, uh, the son of Heli, because that's her family line. Jesus is a blood descendant of Mary, so he has David's blood running through his veins. He is both fully human, he is fully God. He's connected uh, legally through Joseph. He is connected uh, physically through Mary. And then there's even more. I wish we had time to go into all of this. It gets kind of deep and sometimes difficult, but there's actually a blood curse put on the line on the side of Joseph. Jesus avoids that, of course, because he comes through this line, not through Solomon and that side, but through this side and through, through a, a guy named Nathan. Last thing I got to share with you, and, and, and I'll leave you with this to chew on. It kind of blew me away. For the first time, I thought of it, and I went and I checked it out, and, and it just turns out, well, this is how it is. You should be aware that after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah murdered, that God sent a prophet to him. And that prophet's name was Nathan. Now, Nathan busts David and, and uh, you, you got to wonder, well, what's the nature of David's relationship to Nathan after that? And, uh, and so here's what, here's what I found. And it was just a suspicion that proved to be true as I, I did a little research just in scripture. You know that the first child died. That was not punishment for the child. That was punishment for David and Bathsheba. I mean, the child goes to be with the Lord. So nobody could say being with the Lord is any form of punishment. But David and Bathsheba suffered as a result of their sin and the loss of that first child. Now, she bears four more children for David. First, we know is Solomon. And if you go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 3, you'll see it there. The, of the other three, one of them is named Nathan. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that faithful are the wounds of a friend and that David not only received the rebuke, but, but actually ends up naming one of his sons after the guy who got in his face and said, I rebuke you and you're doing the wrong thing and, and you are the man. You're guilty, David. Well, all of that to say this. The scripture says faithful are the wounds of a friend. And if someone comes and they speak the truth and they do it in love, although it usually doesn't feel that way, once you think it through, only someone who really cares for, for you will tell you the truth. Only someone who's willing to put the relationship on the line will do what's right. So Nathan, the prophet, like John the Baptist, a faithful witness, a spirit-filled believer, used by God, ministering to others in the name of God. And, and we conclude with this thought, the Spirit of God is here and working. 
And he is either knocking on the door of your heart saying, all this is true and you need to surrender your life. You need to confess you're a guilty sinner. You need to give your life to the Lord. Or he's already sealed you and living within you and he's saying, I want more. I want to do more. I want to do more in you. I want to transform you. I want to use you. And if your heart like mine says, Lord, yes, change me and use me and make my life more fruitful for you, more glorifying to you. If that's you today, then you just present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, and he will have his way. Lord, thank you for your word to us today. There are quite a few reasons why Jesus had to come in the flesh and why he needed to identify with us. And most of them may be more important than the reason I'm about to discuss, but I will say it's very important to me. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now I can't imagine what it would be like to be without sin. I was born a sinner. But knowing that Jesus can sympathize with my weaknesses means that he understands why I fail. He understands why I am tempted, and he understands why I sin, even when I don't completely understand that myself. Now this makes Jesus uniquely able to intercede with the Father on my behalf, and I love that he does that for me. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.